Welcome to Mental Health in Minnesota, produced by NAMI Minnesota, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the lives of children and adults with mental illnesses and their families. Visit NAMI Minnesota online at namihelps.org. My name is Brian Jost. I'll be your host for this episode. I'm a former NAMI Minnesota staff member. Uh, I live with bipolar disorder. This episode is the beginning of a series on DBT, dialectical behavior therapy, as well as touching on CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Included in the series are bits and pieces of how people might maintain mental health during the COVID-19 pandemic. The series begins with a conversation with a mental health professional and will be followed up with conversations I had with four people who live with mental illnesses and who have benefited from DBT and CBT. I have used CBT myself and attempted to go through a DBT program sometime around the winter of 2018-2019, but I lasted only a couple months into the six-month-long program. Producing this series of podcast episodes has helped me to pursue DBT again, and I've just begun a 12-month DBT program that I'm feeling good about, so I hope I make it all the way through that. And in this episode, I have a conversation with Dr. Helen Valenstein Ma, PhD, LP, from the University of Minnesota Medical School. Helen is an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. She is a clinical psychologist who specializes in dialectical behavior therapy, DBT, and trauma-focused treatments for adolescents and adults. Dr. Valenstein Ma co-leads the DBT program in the Psychiatry Outpatient Clinic, through which she provides training and supervision for psychiatry residents, psychology interns, and psychology practicum students. For more information about Dr. Helen Valenstein Ma, including some contact information, uh, look for the link in the podcast show notes that uh, should take you to her bio page at the University of Minnesota Medical School website. This conversation was recorded April 30th, 2020. Thanks, Helen, for being with us today. Uh, other than what we, what I read in the intro for your bio, is there anything else about your background that you'd like to share? Well, thanks first, Brian, for having me. I think one kind of cool part about my training was that I did attend graduate school at the University of Washington, and I trained with uh, Marsha Linehan, who's the treatment developer of dialectical behavior therapy. So. I like to think I came from the source of DBT and, you know, had a lot of great colleagues and mentors there. And really, I, f- I think DBT is kind of the heart and soul of what I do and my theoretical orientation. So I'm excited to talk about that, um, as well as cognitive behavioral therapy today. Mentioning both of those, DBT and CBT, uh, just coming from my own experience where I've been in Oh, uh, for example, I can think of being in a peer-led support group, so where the facilitator is someone living with a mental illness and is not a therapist or doctor, and then um, everyone in the room is is in that similar situation. And I can recall conversations that came up between people where they're trying to tell each other about their own experiences going through 
CBT and DBT, and there seemed to be so much confusion as which one is which and, and which pieces are found in both and is one part of the other. And could you maybe touch on just a little bit about how you see the differences between CBT and DBT? Yeah. Cognitive behavioral therapy, really the heart of it is looking at thoughts, emotions, and behaviors and how all of those relate to life and how people live life and how you know, our thoughts and what we do affect our mood and vice versa. And dialectical behavior therapy came from the behavioral tradition in the 1980s, I believe. Marshall Linehan developed it and evaluated it in the 1990s. So it is very much a form of cognitive behavioral therapy. I think the unique part about DBT is it brought in an acceptance piece and a mindfulness piece that really hadn't been in the, in psychotherapy or at least cognitive behavioral therapy before that. And so there's kind of specific elements of DBT um, really balancing or, you know, DBT, the word in there is dialectics. And that means finding and honoring the truth in opposites or how two things that look opposite actually can both be true at the very same time. And so DBT really balances change and acceptance, Um, you know, honoring where the person you're working with is right in that moment, as well as recognizing the need for their lives to be different and that they also need change in their life. I think we can think about dialectical behavior therapy as a form of cognitive behavioral therapy. CBT is the generic and DBT has kind of a specific approach and treatment strategies that make it a little bit uh, unique. Okay, that's very helpful. Thank you for that. And is DBT used for adults only or also for teens and youth? Great question. Yeah, DBT is used for teenagers through adults. We have a model of DBT, multifamily DBT. Usually we recognize that, you know, a teen or even a young adult, they're part of a family system. And so we like to have family members also learning the DBT skills and involved with the program because we believe that families need to learn or it'd be useful for them to learn some of those DBT skills like validation, acceptance, lots of other skills to help not only the teen, but also just the family be more effective in how they relate to each other. I do, you know, I don't know the data on this, but I do think there's some DBT for younger children. And I do believe there are initiatives to, yeah, to adapt this for younger kids. I also know of um, approaches for DBT in schools and getting DBT skills into schools, which I think is a great idea. I think so many teens can benefit from learning about emotions, learning how to manage strong emotions, learning how to be effective in relationships and communicate effectively, as well as these core pieces of mindfulness and accepting oneself and one's situation as it is in the moment. Oh, yeah, it, it seems like something everybody in the world should learn. <laughs> Absolutely. I certainly use DBT skills myself on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. How is DBT usually delivered? I know from personal experience, it can be in a group setting. Are there other ways? Is it always in a group? 
Yeah, so traditional or standard DBT has four modes of treatment. So there's individual therapy, which is one-on-one. You meet with an individual therapist to work on um, life worth living goals. So whatever is important to you as a person, um, it's all about getting you towards those goals, having a life that you feel like living, one that you don't want to escape from or that feels intolerable to live. Um, The second mode is skills training. So this is usually in a group format where individuals uh, meet with skills group leader or two to learn new behavioral skills to manage emotions, be effective in relationships, tolerate crisis situations and distress related to them. And also, again, those mindfulness skills, how to be present in the moment, um, understand yourself and the world around you. Um, And then phone coaching. So um, usually DBT is um, one of the main groups that's been evaluated with is um, suicidal individuals or individuals um, who self-harm, meaning they, you know, hurt themselves physically. Um, and we know that those situations don't go away or those feelings don't go away once you're outside of the therapy room. And so we provide individual skills coaching to folks, um, using the DBT skills to get through those situations, um, and be effective in their lives. And then, um, consultation teams. So an important part of DBT is that therapists come together to make sure that they're providing the best treatment possible. We talk about challenges we're experiencing as therapists and um, ways to to um, engage in the treatment effectively. Okay. So, yeah. oh, go ahead. Was um, there something else you were going to add? Um, not really. Okay. <laughs> I'm kind of thinking aloud yeah, yeah, here. Yeah. I'm just wondering. I, I don't know if that was the most eloquent answer, but I hope it was okay. Well, that was helpful for me because I've only been aware of of it taking place in a group and I know I had pursued DBT one-on-one and I wasn't successful finding someone to do that with me. So you didn't have an individual therapist? Uh, I hadn't. So the the provider where I was at, I had an individual therapist and then when I started DBT at the same provider, it was a group um, led by a couple other staff people there. And then, so I, I kept being told there that I had to do it in a group and then, and then I would have the one-on-one therapy sessions kind of as a going along. Um, Mm -hmm. but as far as like going in through and learning all those skills, it was just in the group. Um, and I kept wanting to do it just one-on-one because I felt like I could move quicker. Oh, but, um, Mm-hmm. I think the reason it's done in a group is, well, and I can I completely understand your preference and pacing for it. Um, there's a lot of like learning, I think, that happens, you know, you get to learn not only from your life, but from other people's lives that can be helpful. Sure. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and is there a standard number of sessions or a specific program length that a person could expect? Yeah, uh, DBT is typically six months um, to a year. So it takes about six months to get through all of the skills um, one time, uh, the four modules of skills, which are distress tolerance, 
interpersonal effectiveness, emotion regulation, and mindfulness. And um, many people go through the skills twice, so they commit to a year because um, sometimes it's a lot of skills <laughs> and it and it's hard to absorb everything, especially mm-hmm. when you know you're starting off in a treatment where you may not be in the best place in your life and it's hard to absorb a lot of new material and so. Um, it can help to have that repeated sometimes. So six months to a year is usually the typical length. Okay. And what illnesses or symptoms do does DBT most effectively treat? DBT treats suicidality, um, meaning treats folks that think about suicide and don't feel like their life is worth living. They want out of life oftentimes. Um, self-harm, so cutting, burning, those kinds of behaviors. Um, And DBT was evaluated early on for individuals with borderline personality disorder, which we think of as a disorder of pervasive emotion dysregulation, meaning it people experience stronger emotions. Um, The intensity is is higher. Um, More frequent negative emotions or intense emotions, and then a slower return to baseline. So it's just harder to kind of come down from that intensity of emotion. Um, and this, you know, BPD, we have a, a theory of how that develops, which is probably a biological sensitivity interacting with an environment that um, is not uh, conducive for learning how to regulate your emotions. So um, DBT has been evaluated for a number of groups. It has been evaluated for adolescents who experience, you know, strong emotions and um, suicidality. I think it's been evaluated with folks um, with eating disorders, substance use disorders, certainly. Um, There's now a modified version that includes a PTSD treatment, and it's been evaluated for individuals with borderline personality disorder and PTSD. So there's a lot of different groups that um, it's... uh, been applied to again you know the the core piece is how to manage strong emotions how to regulate strong emotions how to and how to build a life worth living which i think cuts across typical mental health disorders and can be useful for many many people mm-hmm. is there any common reason why you see it might not work for some people mm-hmm. sometimes um there's a lot of crises in individuals' lives. And because it is an intensive commitment, you know, we're talking two hours of skills group a week, an hour of individual therapy for six months to a year. Uh, For some people, that's a really hard thing to stick with. And that's not to say that's the fault of that person. It's absolutely, there's a lot of things that go into committing to a treatment. Um, And so sometimes kind of a chaotic life environment makes it difficult to complete the treatment. Um, Sometimes, you know, problem behaviors get in the way um, in terms of like uh, substance use or other things going on in in life. Um, Sometimes families are not supportive. So, you know, a teen might be really invested, but the family system isn't really helping them kind of meet their treatment goals. Um, so I think there can be a variety of reasons why sometimes, you know, it's not a great therapist patient match and that's not on the patient. It's more of 
on the DBT therapist or the team. And so I think there's a lot of uh, reasons why um, it may not work out. I think there are a lot of reasons why it may, but yeah, certainly mm-hmm. it doesn't always, it always isn't always successful. So. Okay. And uh, you just reminded me um, how I wanted to, to speak about uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and the social distancing and people staying at home and, and, we're recording now, April thirtieth, two thousand twenty. Um, what have you seen with with uh, DBT groups that maybe were taking place before the pandemic, and what are they doing now? Are they moving to online group meetings, or what's what's happening that you know of? Yeah, so at the University of Minnesota, we've transitioned our DBT groups online, which is um, yeah, new for all of us, you know our patients and therapists for sure. So there's a, a big learning curve. Um, I will say, you know, we're making some modifications to the groups. We're shortening them a bit cause it's really hard to be online, you know, for, for that long. Um, and kind of trying to switch up our teaching styles so that, um, it stays engaging for folks, but we have moved online and, my hope is that it makes people feel less isolated. You know, this is a, is a time where we can really feel separated from each other and alone. And I think having a group, a skills group and meeting with your individual therapist, um, face-to-face video style reminds us that we're, we are all connected and, and we are not alone, um, even during this stressful period. Mm-hmm. Thank you. How do people typically respond when DBT is suggested? Is there a typical response or is it just different with everybody? Yeah, it seems to be different um, with with um, different people. I will say sometimes, you know, when we talk about DBT and how it's really focused on building a life worth living and um, how we talk about managing emotions and um being effective in relationships, I think it, that really resonates with a lot of people that are feeling like they don't have, you know, that they that they could use help in those areas. Um, sometimes I think it it sounds a little bit too good to be true, you know, like wow, this sounds great, but I don't know if this is going to work for me. Which, of course, a little doubt makes sense. You know, a, a lot of people have been in treatment before DBT and they're wondering, is this really going to be different for them? So um, sometimes maybe a bit of skepticism. I think it's our job as therapists to really have hope for people that feel like there is no hope. And that sometimes, you know, when you're just hearing about a treatment, you know, you're not necessarily going to believe that it's going to work for you. So the nice part is as therapists, we've seen at work, you know, we've seen at work for people that don't feel they have a future and we can have that hope then for, for patients when we're just talking to them about the treatment. Is there any sort of common time frame for when people start to understand, oh, this can actually work for me? Yeah. Um, yeah, I would say it really varies. There's some people, they learn a few skills and they say, oh, wow this is really working for me. You know, some of the distress tolerance skills, we have a skill called tip the temperature where you use ice to kind of activate, um, 
a mammalian dye reflex that down regulates the body so it reduces heart rate really quickly and you know some people learn that and they say wow <laughs> and that really gets them excited about um learning more skills you know some people they it takes more time and they need a few um skills to practice in their lives and see that they're actually getting some having some success with them and that can be really rewarding um and then some people it takes a second round of skills for things to really kind of solidify and and to realize that they can um engage with the world differently engage with themselves differently you know sometimes it takes a little bit to make to make headway on your life worth living goals um whether that be getting a job going back to school you know um repairing relationships um feeling like you're you can be be in control of your emotions so it, it really does vary um in terms mm -hmm. of when people kind of buy in or when they see it working yeah okay okay do you can I ask what it was like for you and your experience? Uh, I gave up early. I, um, I so let's see. My first, the first time, I'm I'm thinking back to um, a therapist who suggested CBT first, and I tried that with him for a little bit, and for some reason it it wasn't working for me, and and I think it came down to me not letting it work. Um, I. I think I was, I don't, I don't know why, but I wasn't giving it a, a try. Um, and then, and then maybe five years after that, uh, a different therapist suggested DBT and I did a few months of it and I was really impatient, um, I know I felt very impatient with the group setting and I felt like it was slow and the breaks were too long and and it was starting late, waiting for people to come in late at the beginning and um, I, I just wanted it all to happen faster and I got frustrated and found myself feeling stressed about going and not looking forward to it, which felt different from my individual therapy sessions usually. Um, mm -hmm. So I quit, which um, you know, I wish I hadn't, and I want to look at getting back to it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because I know, I, I know, even though I didn't finish, I know there were useful bits that I have taken from it. Um, so I like, I, I, I feel like I did enough to believe in it, but I didn't finish it. Um, so I feel kind well, of... Well, the good news is it's not going anywhere. So you can yeah, right, right. do it. Um, so after people commit to the six months to a year and go through once or twice, uh, do people then typically take take it and run with it on their own and or have, have to come back for um, more help with it? Or is it kind of something that you learn and, and then you go and do yeah I hate to answer all these questions like this but it depends I'd say yeah. <laughs> some people you know they feel like all right I have enough I I'm I'm set with psychotherapy and they end treatment and they're kind of good to go um some people 
stay in, and work with their individual therapist on kind of those typical day-to-day quality of life concerns that every human has. And um, some folks, you know, do well and then feel like they need some booster sessions and come back for that. So um, it, it really varies um, on, on the person. Some people, you know, they feel they finished DBT and they, they've kind of committed to living. They feel um, positive about life, but they still have other kind of issues going on. Maybe, um, you know, yeah. I don't know, uh, relationship, things like that, that they want to continue to work on. So it depends. Yeah. While maintaining confidentiality, can you share a real example of how DBT has helped someone? Absolutely. So um, there was a teenager that went through our program and originally had a, was feeling kind of hopeless, feeling very anxious about her future, self-harming, and went through our skills group and had an individual therapist as well. She recently completed the program and stopped self-harming, was much more optimistic about what her future holds, definitely used the DBT skills to manage anxiety. Um, Again, that tip the temperature skill was one of her favorites. She also um, used a lot of opposite action for anxiety, which is um, acting opposite to that emotion urge. And... um, I think had a much stronger relationship with her family also after the treatment. Um, so she's kind of on to her next steps in life. Um, it really was, it was just a wonderful experience to be part of that, of her, her treatment and um, definitely a successful graduation from DBT. Mm, that's great. Uh, do you have any words of wisdom or advice for people in general, just thinking of of mental health care and people uh, needing to continue treatment or seek out new treatment for the first time, and during this pandemic when it's you know it's it's so different. Like even myself, my one on one therapy sessions, I'm suddenly not looking forward to them because they're on the phone, and and that feels challenging to me. And I'm still doing them, but. And it has me thinking of, well, if someone who maybe needs to go to their first therapy appointment ever and then is maybe faced with having to do that on the phone, depending on where they're at, um, I don't what do you, is there something you're telling people about how to view all of this? Yeah, it is. I, you know, one of my frustrations as a therapist is how hard it is to navigate you know, getting into mental health care and finding a therapist and um, all the issues with insurance and wait lists. And it's really hard to actually get mental health care. And during COVID, it, you know, it's another layer of not being able to meet in person and um, maybe even feeling more isolated or alone. Um, I think, so I, I just want to recognize that. And I, I think that we need to do a better job as mental health professionals and making 
it easier to access us and to um, be able to connect with us. I think in terms of doing online therapy, I say give it a shot um, because we actually have some good research data that um, at least for certain treatments, they're as effective doing video telehealth therapy um, as in-person treatment. And so just because you're meeting, you know, remotely doesn't mean you're not going to get benefit from it. Um, I think, you know, phone is, is harder. So if you can do video, if you are able to see somebody face to face, it can help with connection and, and, uh, getting to know that person, especially if it's your first time connecting with them. Um, in terms of, uh, how to get connected, you know, there's use your network, use your people, you know, ask for referrals, um, talk with your insurance. If you are able to do so, um, ask for support from others who have done it in the past. That can be helpful for figuring out how to connect. And then there's, you know, certain websites like Psychology Today or the American Psychological Association that have lists of people that do online therapy. So there are, you know, absolutely providers available who do this kind of work. Um, and know that this won't last forever. And if online therapy is, you're feeling like, you know, I, I just don't think that's for me, you can, it, I'm really hopeful that in a few months, you know, we're, we're going to be able to be back in person and um, you're going to have that option. Okay. Well, thank you. That's all the questions that I had for you. Is there anything on your mind that maybe you were hoping to share or anything else you thought of? You know, I really just appreciate organizations like NAMI that give people a voice. And I think it's great to ask questions and to get educated on mental health and treatment options. So I love that there's kind of podcasts diving into the ins and outs of therapy. I think as a consumer of mental health care, don't be afraid to ask your therapist about their orientation or about treatment plans and you're a part of this. It should be a team, a team based approach, you and your therapist. So yeah, I'm, I'm just glad, you know, Brian, you're hosting something like this and we get to talk about therapy and what it looks like and, and that, you know, hopefully, um, people know that there are, are options for them, that you truly are never alone, that we, that we as mental health providers are here for you. So yeah, well, and thank you. You're very needed. <laughs> very needed. Yeah. Well, thank you, Helen. I appreciate your time and sharing. Absolutely. My pleasure. For more information about this episode, please check the podcast show notes. For additional resources, visit NAMI Minnesota online at namimn.org. You've been listening to Mental Health in Minnesota, produced by NAMI Minnesota. <laughs>